Bill Monroe once said, Bluegrass has brought more people together and made more friends than any music in the world. Well, for today's program, Bluegrass has done it again. If it wasn't for Bluegrass, I probably wouldn't be talking to my guest today. So, well done, Bluegrass. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Sitting on the front porch, face toward the hill. Trail of years behind me, and a night I had to kill. One glass of whiskey to ease my mind. And another one to take it too far away to find. Staring up at the mountain like to drive me mad. The mountain never changes, so I guess I better have one glass of whiskey to ease my mind. And another one to take it too far away to find. Fast. Next time I'll take the money and I'll put the plan last One glass of whiskey to ease my mind And another one to take it too far away to find These L.A. bars are friendly, small town bars are rough I don't need no more unkindness, the memories of One glass of whiskey to ease my mind And another one to take it too far away to find That is the music of my guest today on the program Robbie Folks. Let me tell you a little bit about Robbie Folks. With close to 20 albums under his belt, including country love songs, Let's Kill Saturday Night, and his fabulous new one, Bluegrass Vacation, Robbie Folks has had quite a career. Over the last 30 years, the Pennsylvania-born singer-songwriter has collaborated with everyone from Steve Albini to Dallas Wayne to NRBQ's Al Anderson He's worked as a country music songwriter for the Music Road publisher API, and he scored two Grammy nominations in 2016 for Best Folk Album and Best American Roots Song. There's a lot that's cool about Robbie Folks. His flat-picking guitar style, his poetic turns of phrase, his unique sense of humor, and his penchant to cover songs you'd never think he'd cover. He's knocked out versions of tracks by everyone from the Bangles to Shania Twain, so you pretty much never know what's going to happen. But what's really cool about Robbie Folks, I mean, all that other stuff is very cool, but my favorite thing about him is that he's an engine of creative power, and that engine hasn't dimmed once in his 30-year career. His new album, Bluegrass Vacation, is a rollicking and joyful blast of sheer bluegrass bliss. From one glass of whiskey to old-time music is here to stay. Bluegrass Vacation is a joyful romp that references the genre with a respectful tip of the hat that breathes new life into an old tradition. It's fabulous stuff. And this is a fabulous chat. So here you go. Me and Robbie Folks having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
I, I guess it's often said that that early bluegrass of Bill Monroe is um, has has that kind of wild, untamed energy, and it's also a little bit, you know, it's also just uh, to use a a blunt word it's sloppy compared to what modern bluegrass sounds like you know like the early bluegrass is and um so in those senses it's it's punk rockish but but in those senses a lot is like punk rock you know <laughs> not just bluegrass but uh probably turn of the century ragtime is as well i don't know like how is it sloppy well i mean just take I don't know. You could take any instrument, probably, but take the bass. Some of those early bassists uh, weren't very good bassists, I would just say, you know, and um, it probably it might sound offensive, but um, but they're not hitting the dead center of the notes. And, you know, sometimes it's somebody's girlfriend or brother-in-law <laughs> that plays the bass. And oftentimes it was like a comic instrument, you know, and the guy would be a comedian and have the blacked out uh, teeth and the funny name and be and he'd be on the bass because uh, that was, uh, you know, because you couldn't hear it well and it was kind of in the back of the mix or the back of the room. And um, so that doesn't that doesn't fly anymore, you know, in modern playing, you know, you got to have a good bassist. It wasn't about musical facility then in some ways. Well, I think it was by the standards of the day. And I think, you know, the the front man that I just met, if you call Bill Monroe the front man of his band, you know, his mandolin playing is um, in a lot of ways unequaled, you know, since him. So um, so him being prominent among those players, you know, the mandolin player, the mandolin playing is like, you know, the shit. Can I say shit on this? You can. You can totally say it. It's the fucking shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> um but stuff's just different, you know, like the way that Lester Flatt played the guitar was a real um, personalized way, a gentle way, you know, he's working with his thumb, he's not working, it's just evolved into something kind of more um, um, precise and uh, prodigious and different nowadays. When you listen to those recordings, do you do you listen to it as a sort of, technically, is it, can you hear the mistakes and is it, does it get in the way of... Um, it's almost like, are you listening as a technician or as a fan, or is it hard to separate the two? It's probably been a couple years since I listened to like 1940s bluegrass. Well, I don't know if that's true, but it's been a while. No, I hear it. Um, I mean, I've heard it so much that I just like take it for what it is in its own context, you know, and the same with the new music. Um, but that's interesting. You know, if somebody puts out something brand new, this year and it's designed to sound like something from 1946 you know in the sense that the recording sounds uh that way you know a bunch of people in a small room and a ton of bleed and maybe the bass player isn't very audible and you know maybe some of the playing is a little bit um you know ragged in the way that the old playing was ragged then knowing that it's now it hits me badly you know i, I don't know if you follow that chain of thought or if it's even sensible but um i mean i think the context is kind of everything my first bluegrass record this is embarrassing was the steve earl dell record that they did back 20 years sure. ago let's just take that record the the playing on that record is pretty darn precise it's pretty good yeah so he's got great players on that right it's like peter rowan and norman blake and i can't and and uh roy husky i think is playing the bass on that i think so so yeah, he got some of the best players that he could possibly get, and uh, there's no shame in uh, 
and uh you know your particular window into the music for me you know the will the circle be unbroken might have been a an equivalent kind of a thing but uh but it's got to be something you know and we're not living in 1946 so it's it's likely something newer and it's funny because i was th like if you think about like the reggae albums from the 50 well from like the late 50s early 60s those guys could really they could really play and so some of the recordings were kind of lo-fi, but you could hear the the musical expertise was there. But bluegrass seems like it was the opposite, where it was a little sloppier, a little more shambolic, and maybe that's where the charm lies. I don't know. Yeah, shambolic is a good word, but um, maybe we. I, I don't want to put too fine a point on that sloppy idea. I mean, the 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 groove of it is so much more um, defining and essential, you know, than than how prodigiously any particular person plays and so uh like in those older recordings the fact that they were that they were on the road a lot and you'd hear um you know the flat and scrubs band where it just hit it so hard when they were in their prime uh you're hearing the the combined uh feel of uh of guys that are just super intimate with how you know each other plays and uh that's that's so much, I think, more defining of the quality of the music than yeah, than any one guy blowing you away with, you know. <laughs> For you, are you finding that you're listening to a lot of older music these days, or do you keep up with what's going on? Like, where where is your um your ear pretty much? Where is it firmly planted, or is it firmly planted? Oh, I'm so not keeping up, Alex. I'm um, <laughs> I listen to a lot of podcasts. It's funny because I did a show. A lot of you probably 25 years ago now with Don Dixon and, you know, Don's maybe 10 years older than me. And he said at this show, it was at the bottom line where you talk and you play and you like trade stories and stuff. And he said, yeah, I'm getting to the age where uh, I, I don't listen to music anymore, just kind of sports and talk radio. And I thought, oh, my God, I hope I'm never that age. But here I am. So, um, uh, you know, I, I just work. It, it's a little bit of work not to keep listening to stuff that I know that I like from the past, you know, and to keep um, my ears open to new stuff. So I would have to look at my recent Spotify to see what, uh, you know, in answer to your question, what I am listening to, which I'll do right now. All right. Let's let's. By the way, I love Don Dixon. Yeah, I don't know what he's up to lately, but uh, he's great. Well, like anybody really cares about this, but I see I'm searching in vain for Mickey Katz on Spotify. And um, I love his stuff, you know, his uh, great, he's great clarinetist and obviously a lot of funny songs too, but he's not really on Spotify. Francoise Hardy, I was like looking for just because I was in France, Ian and Sylvia, because Ian died not long ago. Brennan Lee, she's a friend. Allison Brown, she's a friend. Dan Penn. Uh, Warren Zima, boy, a lot of old stuff. Ella Fitzgerald, Carol King. Man, I am freaking stuck in the past. I really am. <laughs> Mighty Poplar, I was looking for. That's a new bluegrass kind of a thing. Um, there's a, a great festival over Knoxville called Big Ears, and um, I've been to that twice. And 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 I really use that and the accompanying sort of uh, email uh, uh, stuff that they send to, um, I mean, I can easily find five or six things that I've never heard of that are sort of on the fringes that are, that that's great and experimental and, you know, not bluegrass or country or the usual thing for me. So 
from that world, like Maeve uh, Gilchrist had a fantastic record out maybe two years ago right now, I think it was called The Harp Weaver. And um, and uh, who else was good at that? Evan Zipperin, other people. Yeah, it's it's great for experimental. What it kind of exploded your brain as a kid? Like what was the what was the thing that you heard that that sort of just completely rang your bell when you were growing up? Well, a lot of stuff. Um, Doc Watson, you know, real early on, the stuff that my folks listened to that they had on, you know, their handful of LPs and the real to real tape recorders. And that would have been like Doc Watson and Kingston Trio and Patrick Sky and Gordon Lightfoot and Richard Farina and uh, five or six other things. The band, you know, that group, the band. And then uh, as I got older and developed uh, my own tastes, um, the Beatles and Bob Dylan, and then in the um, also in the early to mid seventies, the whole um, young bluegrass scene kind of seemed to explode, you know, with Sam Bush and Norman Blake and Dan Crary and Tony Rice and all these guys. And um, so I loved that stuff at the time that it was happening. Did bands like The Clash matter to you as a kid? I would say that all of the stuff in that category, I did like pay attention to because I was, you know, a teenager and it was happening. But a lot of it, I kind of, um, I kind of um, convinced myself that I, <laughs> I was passionate about more than I was really passionate about it. So I did hear like London Calling and maybe one other record when it came out, but I can't say that it it spoke to me and um, kind of the same with a lot of those bands like the police and the pretenders and a lot of this stuff. I bought a record and kind of liked it, but not enough to really like, maybe I was already too formed at that point, you know, with the stuff that I was listening to from age two to, to 14. Um, but, and also like Southern music just really stuck to my uh, guts in a way that, um, that some of the um, more popular stuff didn't. But that said, man, I loved like Rock Pile and all that kind of thing and still do, you know, something about that, the rock and roll, like the way that it tied into 50s American music totally appealed to me as well as like the songwriting chops of um, Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe and Graham Parker. I had Dave Edmonds on the other day, not on the podcast, but I was listening to him and I thought, this guy should have been more massive than he was. He was unbelievable. Yeah, I think Dave thinks that too, because <laughs> <laughs> I was on a I was working on a show not long ago and uh, his manager, old manager Jake Riviera was there and um we had a brief conversation and maybe it was private, I don't know, but I, I just remember like Jake was saying uh because I, I sang a song of Dave's at the show and Jake was seemed impressed that I knew it so well. And I sort of imitate Dave when I do it too. You know, I go, wow, like that nasal thing that he did. Um, but I have like most of his catalog kind of memorized hard, you know, because I've listened to it so much. And he was, he seemed impressed that I knew it so well. But I said, man, who, 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 who you know, of course I know it well. It's freaking great music. I love it. And then he said, well, I think Dave like feels slightly overlooked, maybe like there's other people that get paid more attention to. That's what you were just kind of hinting at. But I don't know. I think that's I think that's crazy. I think people that are smart know all about that, <laughs> all about yeah. that stuff. And who cares if it's not as popular as, uh, you know, some other act? Yeah, because Parker Lowe and Edmonds, they were sort of a. Uh... That's a that's a and Costello. That's a that's a powerful pop bouquet, I guess you'd say. 
Yeah, it's funny. I even to like to breach another confidence. Um, I'm I'm friends with uh, Elvis Costello's drummer Pete, and and he said something similar. Well, you know, we could have been a more popular act if so and so and so and so in the eighties. I think, what the fuck are you talking about, man? More popular act? Like, whoa, what do you want? The world? I I think. I mean, I I think it's like. I don't even care how popular these people. It matters to them, obviously, you know, and to their pocketbooks and to their sense of well-being. But I don't care if the music that I like sells one copy or a million. I mean, why why should that matter? I think it only matters to the artists at a certain point in their life where, you know, you look at your what's my four hundred one k plan. It's not it's not Led Zeppelin. So right, like i think like why is echo and the bunnyman still on the road and it's probably that's probably why right it's probably just to make more money at this point yeah it's their it's their problem you know uh, if it is a problem i always think of this guy uh and to to breach a third confidence now a guy that played with uh dan fogelberg was talking to me about he said yeah when dan died he really you know um as he was as he was reaching the end he achieved um, some peace, you know, as far as his legacy and what he'd done. And I was like, peace about what? You know, what does Dan Fogelberg have to be, uh, you know, anxious about? He said, well, he was never as big as uh, Don Henley, you know, and that that ate at him a little bit. And um, boy, that really, that really stuck in my memory. It was great to hear because, you know, when I have similar thoughts that oh, I'm not as popular as so-and-so, all I have to do is think of poor Dan Fogelberg, you know, who's like, you know, didn't make peace until he was close to death, that he wasn't as big as Don. That's just nuts. Come on. A lot of people would have loved to have been Dan Fogelberg. Yeah, I sure would have. Are you, Do you think in terms of that, do you, in in, you know, in terms of popularity and success, it seems that that's an unwinnable battle. So it, it seems wise to not think like that, but do you find yourself veering towards towards that sometimes? Well, sometimes I have to make myself not think of that, but I mean, you know, I have nothing to complain about. I've had such a uh, privileged life, you know, to use that overused word privileged. And, um, you know, I, I have a good marriage and, you know, warm house to live in and a nice place and food to eat. And so the career stuff, I mean, sometimes especially like uh, uh, 20, 30 years ago, I'd have to sort of remind myself actively that so much of the music that meant a lot to me when I was 13, 14 years old uh, were acts that just are at my level of popularity or unpopularity, you know, playing to small rooms, small small groups of people. And um, I think I probably like them all the better for that, you know, the sense that I was in on something semi secret or under the radar you know so the fact that i've ended up in a similar place i think should be about the least surprising thing you know since those are my influences and um you know money wise like i said i, I have nothing to complain about i have plenty of money and um i'm just happy to be able to do the thing that i do you know it's a great it's a great privilege to be able to um uh to do this for my day job and you know not have to get up at six in the morning travel an hour to go to an office that i can't stand you know that's that sounds awful that does sound awful so if they're thinking <laughs> like, that does sound really bad if there's any anxiety for you in your art then where does the anxiety live or, or is there anxiety at all in, in the whole process as far as like translating uh personal 
problems into music you mean and things like this yeah yeah it's um I do think about that, you know, because uh, music is better to have conflict in songs, you know, just to maintain interest. And I don't have a ton of conflict or challenges in my day to day life. You know, things are things are going pretty good. So uh, I guess I do root around for things that I'm a little bit anxious about. And, and they're the things that we're all anxious about, you know, like the health of our children and the the health of our friendships, our marriages and and so on. I mean, you know, I painted a rosy picture a second ago, but I, I guess I'm just subject to the same anxieties as everybody else, you know, and, and the fact that I'm going to die. I'm not crazy about that idea. Yeah, no, I'm not either. Um, but it, you're right, though, because if the person you love doesn't love you, it yields a lot of art. But when the person that you love does love you, you're not quite as bursting with with expression. Yeah, and it's and it's fluid. I mean, it it isn't like, you know, the storybook thing that you might think when you're 10 years old that you fall in love, get married, and then everything's kind of locked in. It's it's always kind of, you know, changing and fluid. Well, Daddy packed the van full of camping gear. Mama filled the ice chest up with beer and I rode shotgun all the way up Route 15. It seemed every picker in the USA had landed in a cold pepper field that day. Fifty years gone, I'm still grooving on that scene. And there was old men doing the buck and wing. Young gals skinny dipping in the spring while the singing and the fiddling and the feedback filled the air. While mom and daddy were getting fried, I was sitting there with my eyeballs wide. Straight at me off of the stage Just like a demon with a hypno-ray Stealing my mind away It was that long Religion down your throat, and I was pretty sure they smoked dope like I did. Now, there'd have been police and pepper spray if a few old timers had had their way. Old Dr. Ralph Stanley looked a little unamused. All but anyone with ears could not deny Blake on the guitar, Tony on the vibe. There was something in the air for sure. The It was that long
That's a name I adore in John Hartford. Just to drop one more and don't forget the nitty gritty Bender Scruggs and the sons of Mr. Dave Grisman. And yet Monroe is still the king. But now his church has a new and We're an outcast like me. Can't feel at home. your day-to-day practice are you someone who picks up the guitar every day are you writing every day what's your just in terms of as a practitioner of music what is your do you have a, a sort of regiment or do you just let it go when it when it happens yeah i um i don't write every day i just write when i have to write you know when i when i need to write a record or somebody asks me to write something then i do it and the practice is um ostensibly daily but um <laughs> i i was just off for a week so i i feel uh, a little funny about that i mean really if you're off for a week uh your fingers get you know out of shape so it's it's just there's something athletic about it that you need to keep up with the exercises you know or, or you need to keep up with playing just on an exercise level on a physical health level um but yeah um in theory every day <laughs> a couple hours yeah. So all it takes is one week for a guitar player to lose what they had in their hands. Yeah, I think even one day, you know, I mean, o- overnight, you come back to the instrument and um, and you're not where you were after, you know, in your third hour the day before of playing it. So it's it's really a daily a daily thing. But it's interesting if you take, you know, several days, a week off, even a month off. I've taken a month off a couple of times and you can come back and find yourself in a stronger position. That can totally happen. You know, even though your fingers have lost some callus that you're you're refreshed somehow, you have fresh ideas, you're approaching the instrument differently than before. So, um so it's not super, you know, um predictable how it works but uh but it's best to just do it all the time as a young man were you one of those guys who always had the guitar in your hand were you playing a lot yeah i was definitely addicted to it when i was a teenager and um it was great to do that and not homework i loved doing that or not doing chores around the house with my parents um and now that i'm older i sometimes do have to remind myself that uh, yeah the day's ending and i haven't picked it up yet i'd better get to it 
I was at a party in high school and there was a guy who was kind of just off the radar and he suddenly started playing guitar and he brought his guitar to the party and all these girls were around and he suddenly he was on the radar. Did you realize there was something as a kind of social fluidity of a guy with a guitar had a certain kind of um, pull in the world that a guy without a guitar doesn't have? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think any girl would ever have looked twice at me if I, if I hadn't played an instrument and sung and all that. And um, a couple of days ago, like I got a note on um, Facebook from somebody that said, are you, she said, I was just listening to the radio here. I heard a song by somebody, your name, come on. And are you the same Robbie that came to the third grade classroom and played American Pie on the banjo in Charlottesville in like 1970? three and um <laughs> i said yeah that was probably me that sounds exactly like me and it was funny when my music teacher you know found out i played the banjo and sang she did kind of send me to schools in our district and i was like you know an ambassador for the idea of you know playing an instrument it's it's fun and it's uh it's rewarding and um i was aware right away even though i was you know just um nine probably that oh girls are looking at me now, you know, freaking third grade. And I was aware of that. And um, so that was definite impetus to keep up with it. Yeah, I'm a writer. And so if I'm sitting in a cafe with a pen, no one's looking twice at me. Like I, if I thought if I look tragic enough, a girl will look over this with me when I'm like 19. Didn't happen. Um, I should have picked up a guitar. Yeah, I wonder if Henry Miller felt that way writing Tropic of Capricorn or something. Maybe it's, you know, if you were writing really wild profane stuff maybe they look twice but i don't know yeah yeah that perhaps that's true um <laughs> I've, I've always liked what you do because you, you there's there's so much robbie folks material that i feel there's a really good relationship with your body of work um like elvis costello like niccolo there's there's a lot of music with your name on it and i think that's so cool that you're so prolific and you've your output has been one where you know, to get to know Robbie Folks, there's a catalog of of stuff to dig into. Um, for you, what's the challenge where you say, like, I don't want to do the same thing twice because it seems like you just don't do that. How do you keep yourself artistically fresh in that in that way? I think it's just listening to different stuff and, you know, working with different people. I get to hear what they like. And it's a lot of stuff that I wouldn't have heard of otherwise. So. Um... That really helps. I would say, yeah, mostly, mostly uh, consuming lots of stuff all the time. And then there's also like a, there's maybe a, a mental component where like right about now I'm thinking, well, I, I just did a bluegrass record and I've got another record to deliver for deliver to the label next year, probably. And what will that sound like? And And then I start thinking about, well, what what sounds have I been drawn to recently and what have I not done on record and what's a good thing to do right after a bluegrass record? Should I do another one or should I do something totally different? So there, there are like, you know, uh, there's cognition involved, you know, like deliberate cognition. Um, but, uh, but it's always good to respect, you know, the instinctual part of it too. Like, what am I really turned on by right now? What am I listening to? What, would I be excited just to immerse in because, you know, the, the immersion goes on a long time, right? I mean, to write like 15, 20 songs and then 
arrange them and chart them and record them and mix them and, and uh, the whole process you know takes you know over a year usually so it's important to do something that's going to hold your interest all that time yeah someone like steve Earle, who even that, that that train to come in record he has like a, he does like a reggae song and he does like uh he covers nirvana later on elvis costello did that juliet letters and the back rack record these sort of wild turns um that you wouldn't see coming in your brain is there any kind of simmering idea that sounds kind of kind of uh you know like you might take a wild swing to the left or to the right like are you is there something that you're sort of think i'm not saying you're gonna make a metal record but right i feel it's a little late for that maybe i've done a lot of the, those um hard angle turns you know over the last 20 some years um yeah. and experiment and tried a, a lot of different uh tried a lot of different styles on that you know, either interested me or I just thought, well, can I really do this? You know, let's find out. But I think at this point, you know, for an older guy, I think it's more like, you know, uh, take the things that I'm, that I've sort of proved to myself anyway, that I can do well and dig a little deeper into those more than it is to try for a heavy metal record or something. <laughs> yeah. I talked, speaking of heavy metal, I'm not quite heavy metal, but I talked to Dan from Nazareth uh, maybe a year before he died. And he told me that he would rather hang out with fishermen than musicians because mm. he, he doesn't want to talk about music. He, he'd rather talk about, about fishing. Um, but you seem like you have a lot of great friends in the industry. Are you one of those people that um, that you're always talking about music? Do you, do you keep, I'm not like Seinfeld where he'll only keep the company of comedians, but do you find that organically you are keeping the company of of music, musicians or artists yeah maybe the perfect guy then would be the fishing musician which was the character <laughs> played by john candy on sctv that's right i think like musicians are are great i think i probably do feel more comfortable with musicians than with other people and by musicians i mean like people that play instruments and sing even more than people that like make up songs um because the musicians are on the whole, I think a little less pretentious and arrogant than songwriters tend to be. Um, but um, yeah, music, but also comedians are interesting to hang around with because or, or people that work in comedy, you know, whether it's stand up or production or writing or sketch or whatever it is. Um, I love hanging around those people because it's something that I know a little bit about and can, you know, make and can hold up my end of the conversation, but it's also something that. Um, I don't know everything about and I'm really interested in um, the history of it and the mindset of it. So I like I like those friends um, just about as much as my musician friends. And then, you know, talking to lawyers or other people. I mean, it's it's always interesting to find out what uh, what <laughs> what work somebody does and what they're what they're good at. But it's it's it can be uh, it can be um, uh, you sort of have to give yourself a push to get into their frame of mind and to communicate with somebody that's that far out of the arts. Musicians seem to have a kind of shorthand with each other where it's like you, you know, you understand the experience, you understand the the trials and the travails that you have to deal with on a daily basis from whether it's from royalties or doing gigs or whatever, or just the process itself. I would imagine it would be a tremendous comfort to talk to people who are in your line of work. It's nice, you know, I mean, part of it is the um, the wizardry aspect of it, which is there, you know, like the, 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 the if somebody doesn't play music and looks at somebody they admire that does play music, 
uh, I think uh, the feeling is often, or it was my feeling, you know, when, when I was younger, it's like, oh my God, like is, this is a magic gift that this, this person has. Uh, you know, it's not just the sum of hours of practice and and um, application, but there's some kind of wizardry involved here. And I think that there kind of is a little bit, maybe, but um, when musicians are with each other, that's sort of the last thing on anybody's mind, right? It's like, that, okay, we're in the same line of work and, you know, and we know what it's like to be in the rhythm of traveling and checking into a hotel and um, hanging out in a poorly furnished green room and dealing with weird sound people and all the rest of it. Um, that's definitely, um, that's definitely a, a comforting kind of a collective mindset among musicians. And, but then another part of it too, is like the thing that we were talking about before, which is that, you know, whether something has sold one or a million copies, you know, it's, it's also nice among musicians that, um, that, uh, ideally and usually it's just about the quality of the music or what we think is the quality right and and nobody's thinking about how popular somebody else is um or, or that's not the first thing you're thinking about how far are you up the up the um up the level of success uh compared to me it's just like we're talking about music that we love um that's great and that's a hard frame of mind, I think for people outside music to get into, I find that like economics really, um, uh, really influences the, um, the views of people that are outside music. My romantic idea being here in the Bay Area in the 90s was that the, the bloodshot roster, I, I felt like two things were true. One, everybody loved John Langford, like everybody, hmm. everybody loved him, just thought, no, not a bad word to say about him. Right. And um, and it seemed like everybody was friends. It seemed like that was a real um, confederacy. Like that lineup was like a real team. Um, and maybe that's thanks to to what Bloodshot was doing. But was that true? Or was that a, sort of a mythology I created in my in my brain? Oh, I think for me it was like semi true. I'm sure it's different for you know you ask somebody else. But John is a good friend, and Sally Timms is uh, is another good friend, and uh, I guess all those Mekons are are good friends. And um, and and Kelly Hogan's a good friend, and so yeah, there there's uh, six or seven of them for sure, and then there's another probably ten or twenty that are just like you know people that you have that you know a bit and have you know brief pleasant conversations with from time to time, and those are people like um, uh, like who like Corey Brannan or Nico Case or um, or um, Alejandro Escovito or couple other people so and and then a lot of them I, i've just never met yeah and speaking of prolific john langford is one of those guys that well he's a he's a machine yeah he's i mean his art is so great if he did only that he would still be a pretty big figure i think um but he's great he's impossible to dislike because like i did a tour with him and um and like a version of the mekons this is probably about 10 years ago in Scotland. And the tour was kind of difficult physically because um because of a bunch of things. Um and, and one of the things was that uh, there were very difficult like production situations where we'd get in and things were, you know, in a hall where they weren't really equipped for a musical act, and you'd hear a, a mic being plugged in and then the sound of something exploding in another room and <laughs> like the electricity <laughs> going on and off. Uh just crazy shit going on. And um 
it was the kind of thing that would just totally stress me out and depress me if it were my own show. But I was sort of a sideman on this tour and watching John deal with these things that were going awry was very inspiring because you no, know, anything could happen and it just wouldn't, nothing would throw him. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what drug he's on to be that way or if he's just got a piece of his brain missing or what, but um, <laughs> he's just unflappable and it's a great uh, skill to have when you're on the road. He's also one of those rare people who does two things great. I mean, he's just, he's a great musician and an absolutely brilliant artist as well, like you were saying. And he's just, I don't know how he does so many things so well. And yeah, I'd like to know what his problems are, you know, uh, other than alcoholism, <laughs> what his problems are. I don't think he has any. <laughs> right. Were you ever, um, and it doesn't seem like you are, but were you or are you competitive with, I mean, if I was on the Bloodshot roster, I'd be like, man, I got to up my game. These guys are all so good. In your life, were you someone who looked around and were competitive or is that not your nature? I don't think I'm that competitive. I mean, as far as Bloodshot, I thought I was better than a lot of them. So, so that wasn't competitive over that there. That helps. Oh, yeah, that really helps. A little, little self-confidence like that. Nah, I'm not that competitive. That self-confidence wasn't something that sounds like it was there for a long time. Yeah, I think it takes a while to figure out that what you do is, you know, kind of your own voice. And really, that's the ultimate goal of it is to sort of create your own voice. So once you've got that, um, then uh, it, the competitive... Um, instinct doesn't even make any sense you know i mean i'm not trying to be buck owens um long ago maybe i thought that was my you know my mark to try to hit but i'll never hit it and if i try to do that then i'm just going to be uh, a, at best a second best <laughs> imitator of buck owens or something are you are there areas where you're hard on yourself or like maybe after a show or in in any way do you really sort of um like, where are you the hardest on yourself in this in this profession? I don't know. Like, I'm I'm never, I never feel great about uh, any of it. I, I just said that I I felt like I was better than a bunch of other people, didn't I? <laughs> um, I, I'm never as good as I want to be at any of it, you know. So, I, I don't think I'm hard on myself. Um, I I think I, I have this like re philosophical resignation that I'm never going to be as great on the guitar as I don't know Cody Kilby or Doc Watson or somebody like that. And I'm uh, I'm never going to I'm never going to um, have a throwaway rate on my songwriting that's much better than you know four out of five hit the trash can. You know it's a, it's an alarming uh, throw throwaway rate discard rate. Um, so that I think that keeps my head kind of like focused, uh, you know, and that keeps my my feet on the ground, so to speak, about what the, um, what the uh, what the horizons are, and and what and how that I should l maybe be, um, um, you know, be content with uh, <laughs> with what's likely to to happen. But uh, I'm not really hard on myself. Are you better now than you were, say, 30 years ago at knowing like, OK, this this particular song or this idea is not one to pursue this. This should go into the into the bin and let's pursue something else. Do you think when you were a younger artist, you were pursuing ideas that that it was harder to determine and it's easier now to kind of make that distinction? 
Yeah, for sure. I hear stuff on my older records that I shouldn't have recorded, you know, and I don't hear that so much on my last couple of records. So I think I'm getting better at that. And I think my discard rate um, was a little bit higher in the old days. Like, you know, like now I can be a verse in and see uh, this is just never going to like get that much better and move on rather than finish it and press on no matter what. Um so yeah, I'm definitely I, I take uh I take pleasure and pride in the last um let's see, Gone Away Backward, Upland Stories, the record I did with Linda Gale, and this new record. Um, you know, I, I think I'm seeing like that years after the event, even though it hasn't been years with the one that just came out the other day, but years afterward, there's nothing that I, I'm just like that I wince when I hear it or like <laughs> think of it in the running order on the, um, you know, in the sequence on the record that, Oh my God, what's that dog doing in there am amongst the others? Um, so I'm pretty happy with where I've been the last 10 years. I was driving and it was our first really hot day here in the Bay area. And I had the album on the new one. And I thought like, this actually feels like a spring record to me. Like it sounds like a spring record. So it's a perfect time to release it. Oh, that's nice. Well, the cover is yellow too. So like yeah. a bright, brightly colored cover has something to do with it. Yeah, it just sounded really good driving driving into San Francisco with, you know, 75 degrees and playing the new album. It just felt like uh, a perfect accompaniment to really beautiful, beautiful season. Oh, that's great to hear. It, it Just coincidentally, I was at SFO yesterday on a layover and I couldn't see what the weather was like, but uh, what was it like yesterday? Finally, it was the first day where it was like almost 80. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was your, your, uh, your album heralded the spring. That's lovely to hear. We haven't had 80 degrees yet in uh, LA this year, I don't think. And uh, so that's something to hope for. Well, man, this was super fun. So thanks for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, have this chat. Well, it was fun talking to you. I appreciate to get the, you know, some different questions to think about. There you go, Robbie Folks. Great conversation, really nice guy. Great album, Bluegrass Vacation. Pick it up. RobbieFolks.com is where you need to go to find out where Robbie's playing, what he's doing, and what he's recording. I'm sure he's got some merch on that site too. Maybe a Robbie Folks hoodie would be a nice thing. Oh, it's getting warm. Maybe some Robbie Folks shorts. I don't know. I don't know if he has those, but if he does, then grab yourself a pair. Think how cute you'll look. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. BombshellRadio.com is the place to go to find out what makes our radio station tick. And don't forget, Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review and tell all your friends. Tell people who you think might be your friends in the future. That might be a great icebreaker. Let's close the show with a longer listen to One Glass of Whiskey by Robbie Folks from his new album, Bluegrass Vacation. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening. 
to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. Sitting on the front porch, face toward the hill, trail of years behind me and a nine ahead to kill. One glass of whiskey to ease my mind, and another one to take it too far away to find. Staring up at the mountain like to drive me mad. Changes, so I guess I've ever had one glass of whiskey to ease my mind, and another one to take it too far away to find. Please my mind And another one to take it too far away to find These L.A. bars are friendly, small town bars are rough I don't need no more unkindness The memories of one glass of whiskey Please my mind And another one to take it too far away to find And when I feel I'm sinking low I reach for the first friend I see all I need is to look at him and know He's sinking faster than me Well, it gets stranger the more it goes on It's no wonder how I worry When nothing's really wrong One glass of whiskey to ease my mind And another one to take it too far away To find one glass of whiskey to ease my mind 